Thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. If you have not, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight, where we have some amazing merch and plenty of other things for you guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today is the day where we just pronounce Polish names incorrectly. That is our episode. That is the entire thing that we're going to do. (laughs) And also talk about a game, maybe. Yeah, uh, we'll get to the game eventually. Let's talk about bad pronunciations of all these Polish names. Going to absolutely mm-hmm. butcher these just ahead yep. of time, I'm sure. Going to give it our best shot, but it is what it is. I'm excited to talk about this one. Uh, Henry yes, Cavill. The classic Polish actor. Uh, yeah, so we're talking about <laughs> The Witcher, specifically The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. This is the Witcher game that really, I think, brought most everyone to the series um i remember renting the witcher 2 assassins of kings from blockbuster and just i think not liking the combat or something about it at the time but then the witcher 3 came out uh it it was that next gen title for it it brought the storyline it brought a lot more of I think the Witcher-esque and the comedy and the things that a lot of people really gravitated to. And it's really the game that everyone keeps going back to. I think that if you were not a fan of The Witcher before and didn't really know anything about The Witcher, you could still jump into this game and have a lot of fun with it. I think it has a broad appeal just as an RPG, and that's what makes it so great. Yeah. And so let's just jump into it and then talk about that third installation. So The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt is a 2015 action role-playing game developed and published by CD Projekt. It is the sequel to the 2011 game The Witcher 2, Assassins of Kings, and the third game in the Witcher video game series, played in an open world with a third-person perspective. The games follow the Witcher series of fantasy novels written by Andrzej Sapkowski. The game takes place in a fictional fantasy world based on Slavic mythology. Players controlled Geralt of Rivia, a monster slayer for hire known as a witcher, and search for his adopted daughter, who is on the run from the otherworldly wild hunt. Players battle the game's many dangers with weapons and magic, interact with NPCs, and complete quests to acquire experience points and gold, which are used to increase Geralt's abilities and purchase equipment. The game's story has three possible endings, determined by the player's choices at key points in the narrative. Development began in 2011 and lasted for three and a half years. Central and Northern European cultures formed the basis of the game's world. The game was developed using Red Engine 3, which enabled CD Projekt to create a complex story without compromising its open world. The music was primarily composed by Marcin Sibilovich and performed by the Brandenburg State Orchestra. 
The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt was released for PS4, Windows, and Xbox One in May of 2015, with a Nintendo Switch version released in October 2019, and PS5 and Xbox Series X and S versions titled The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt Complete Edition, which was released in December of 2022. The game received critical acclaim with praise for its gameplay, narrative, world design, combat, and visuals, although it received minor criticism due to technical issues. It holds more than 200 Game of the Year awards and has been cited as one of the greatest video games ever made. Two expansions were also released to critical acclaim, Hearts of Stone and Blood and Wine. A Game of the Year edition was released in August 2016 with the base game, expansions, and all downloadable content included. The game shipped over 40 million copies, making it one of the best-selling video games of all time. Which to me is a wild jump, because I know the first two were sellers, per se. Like, they sold copies, but nothing to this acclaim, and nothing to kind of what was produced in this third one that truthfully does stand alone. I mean, obviously there's characters that are introduced in the first and second that come back in the third, but you don't feel truthfully like you missed out on a lot you feel just like this backstory that's kind of mysterious for some of them yeah but it is truthfully a standalone and i was curious by march of 2014 the witcher as a series had sold seven million copies of both games beforehand so one and Mm -hmm. two combined seven million copies so definitely a massive jump it absolutely was so let's talk about cd project I know it's been more in the news as of late with some cyberpunk stuff and a couple of things going on with like leaked codes, but let's talk about the start of it, how it came to be. So CD Projekt was founded in May 1994 by Marcin Nowinski and Mikhail Kaczynski. According to Nowinski, although he enjoyed playing video games as a child, they were scarce in then-communist Poland. Marcin Nowinski who in high school was selling cracked copies of Western video games at a Warsaw marketplace. Ivinsky met Kaczynski, who became his business partner. And at that time, Kaczynski was also selling video games. Wanting to conduct business legitimately, the two began importing games from U.S. retailers and were the first importers of CD-ROM games. After Poland's transition to a primarily market-based economy in the early 90s, they founded their own company. The two founded CD Projekt in the second quarter of 1994, and with only $2,000, they used a friend's flat as a rent-free office. Nowinski and Kaczynski would have been a great name for a business on its own, I think. Oh, absolutely. The, the good, like, buddy, buddy, buddy yeah. group. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I would assume that they're, like, two of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. When CD Projekt was founded, their biggest challenge was overcoming video game piracy. The company was one of the first in Poland to localize games. And according to Winski, most of their products were sold to mom and pop shops. CD Projekt began partial localization for developers such as Seven Stars and Lyrics Longsoft in 1996, and full scale localization a year later. According to Winski, One of their first successful localization titles was for Ace Ventura, whereas previous localizations had only sold copies in the hundreds, Ace Ventura sold in the thousands, establishing the success of their localization approach. With their methods affirmed, CD Projekt approached BioWare and Interplay Entertainment for the Polish localization of Baldur's Gate. They expected the title to become popular in Poland, 
and felt that no retailer would be able to translate the text from English to Polish. To increase the title's popularity in Poland, CD Projekt added items to the game's packaging and hired well-known Polish actors to voice its characters. Their first attempt was successful, with 18,000 units shipped on the game's release day, higher than the average shipments of other games at the time. The company continued to work with Interplay after the release of Baldur's Gate, collaborating on a PC port for the sequel Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance. To develop the port, CD Projekt hired Sebastian Zielinski, who had developed Mortar 2093 through 1944, and Adam Badowski six months after development began. Interplay experienced financial problems and canceled the PC version. CD Projekt continued to localize other games after Dark Alliance's cancellation and received Business Gazelle Awards in 2003 and 2004. Enthusiasm for game distribution ebbed, and CD Projekt's founders wondered if the company should continue as a distributor or a game developer after Dark Alliance's cancellation. With the game canceled and its code owned by CD Projekt, the company planned to use them to develop their first original game. They intended to develop a game series based on Andrzej Sapkowski's Wiedzman books, which were popular in Poland, and the author accepted the company's development proposal. The franchise rights had been sold to Metropolis Software in 1997, and a playable version of the first chapter was made, but then left abandoned. CD Projekt acquired the rights to the Wiedzman franchise in 2002. According to Iwinski, he and Kaczynski had no idea how to develop a video game at the time. And to develop the game, the company formed a video game development studio, CD Projekt Red, headed by Sebastian Zielinski, in Lodz in 2002. The studio made a demonstration game, which Adam Badowski called a piece of crap in retrospect. The demo was a role-playing game with a top-down perspective, similar to Dark Alliance and Diablo, and used the game engine which powered Mortar. Lewinsky and Kaczynski pitched the demo to a number of publishers without success. The loads office closed and the staff, except for Zelensky, moved to the Warsaw headquarters. Zelensky left the company and Kaczynski headed the project. Although the game's development continued, the demo was abandoned. According to CD Projekt, the development team had different ideas for the game and lacked overall direction. As a result, it was returned to the drawing board in 2003. The team, unfamiliar with video game development, spent nearly two years organizing production. They received assistance from BioWare, who helped promote the game at the 2004 E3 by offering CD Projekt space in their booth next to Jade Empire. BioWare also licensed their Aurora game engine to the company. The game's budget exceeded expectations. The original 15-person development team expanded to about 100. According to Iwinski, content was removed from the game for budgetary reasons, but the characters' personalities were retained. However, there was difficulty in translating the game's Polish text into English. Atari agreed to publish the game. After five years of development, the game brought Wiedzman to an international audience, and so the company adopted the English name, The Witcher. The Witcher was released in 2007 to generally positive reviews. Sales were satisfactory, and the development of sequels began almost immediately after The Witcher's release. The team began the design work for The Witcher 2, Assassins of Kings, and experimented with consoles to develop a new engine for The Witcher 3. 
Their development was halted when the team began work on The Witcher, White Wolf, a console version of the original Witcher. Although they collaborated with French studio Widescreen Games for the console port, it entered development limbo. Widescreen demanded more manpower, money, and time to develop the title, complaining that they were not being paid. And according to Vinsky, CD Projekt paid them more than their own staff members. The team canceled the project, suspending its development. Unhappy with the decision, Atari demanded that CD Projekt repay them for funding the console port development, and Iwinski agreed that Atari would be the North American publisher of the sequel of The Witcher 2, and CD Projekt acquired Metropolis Software in 2008. The dispute over White Wolf was costly. The company faced bankruptcy, with the financial crisis of 2007 through 2008 as a contributing factor. To stay afloat, the team decided to focus on The Witcher 2 with the Witcher 3 engine. When the engine, known as Red Engine, was finished, the game could be ported to other consoles. And to develop The Witcher 2, the company suspended development of Metropolis' first-person shooter titled They. After three and a half years of development, The Witcher 2 Assassins of Kings was released in 2011 to critical praise and sales of more than 1.7 million copies. After The Witcher 2, CD Projekt wanted to develop an open-world game of a quality similar to their other games, and the company wanted to add features to avoid criticism that it was Witcher 2.5. They wanted to push the game's graphics boundaries, releasing it only for the PC and 8th generation consoles. This triggered debate on the team, some of whom wanted to release the game for older consoles to maximize profit. The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt took three and a half years to develop and cost over $81 million. A report alleged that the team had to crunch extensively for a year in order to meet release date deadlines. After multiple delays, it was released in May 2015 to critical praise. Wild Hunt was commercially successful, selling 6 million copies in its first six weeks and giving the studio a profit of $62.5 million in the first half of 2015. The team released 16 free content downloads and the two paid expansions, Hearts of Stone and Blood and Wine, and the team decided that The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt would be the final game in the series with Geralt. Regarding the future of The Witcher series, Conrad Tomaskowicz, game director of The Witcher 3, stated in May 2016 that he hoped to continue working with the series sometime in the future, but had nothing planned at the time. So, as we start to talk about the development, we'll break down what it took to create the third one. So, although the game was planned to begin production in 2008, CD Projekt Red's preoccupation with Rise of the White Wolf, as we talked about, pushed it back to 2011. The company developed The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt with a self-funded budget of 81 million US dollars over three and a half years. The project began with 150 employees, eventually growing to over 250 in-house staff. 1,500 people were involved in the production globally. While the game is based on the Witcher novels, it is not an official continuation of them, and Sapowski's involvement with the game was limited to the creation of its in-game map. The game was localized in 15 languages, with a total of 500 voice actors. The game was scripted concurrently in Polish and English to alleviate difficulty in localization. According to Side, the company which handled voice casting and recording, the 450,000-word script had 950 speaking roles. 
the voices were recorded from late 2012 to early 2015. CD Projekt Red wanted the game to be free of any digital rights management, or DRM for those who have headaches with that, due to the developer's unsuccessful control of piracy with its predecessor, The Witcher 2 Assassins of Kings, whose DRM also made it run slowly. The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt was created with the Red Engine 3, CD Projekt Red's proprietary game engine designed for non-linear role-playing video games set in open-world environments, aided by the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One consoles, and prepared for use in October of 2014. The first playthrough indicated to the developers that the open world, despite its content and generation around the quests, seemed empty. As a solution, they added points of interest. The game had 5,000 bugs that December, which, with a launch date set of February 2015, necessitated its postponement. Like the previous two Witcher games, players are given a complex story with multiple choices and consequences. Unlike other game engines, Red 3 permits a complex storyline without sacrificing virtual world design, and the user interface was made more intuitive with grid-based solutions. The camera system was improved to use long shots for battles with multiple enemies and close-ups for more intimate confrontations. More animations were used for combat sequences than that of The Witcher 2, with each lasting less than one second for quick succession. Game director Conrad Tomaskovitz and senior game designer Damien Monnier cited Dark Souls and Demon Souls as influences on Wild Hunt's combat system, and level designer Miles Tost and senior environment artist Jonas Matson cited The Legend of Zelda as, I think everyone does, it's just permanent in every single game ever. Yep. And Red Dead Redemption as influencing the game's level designs and environments. Legend of Zelda, the first game, as we all know. The first game. No other games before it. Honestly, no other games after it. They're just clones of The Legend of Zelda. (laughs) Months before its release date, the game's economy, crafting, and inventory systems were incomplete and apparently unable to meet the deadline. Senior gameplay designer Matthew Steinke thought of a remedy and drew up a system context diagram. To allocate prices, Steinke wrote a formula based on rate of damage, defense, or healing. Polynomial least squares were used to determine its efficacy, and it was found to eliminate bugs from the system and reduce loading times. Each character was given a unique personality to contrast the fetch quest system typically used in video games. It was decided early that the writing would be witty with metaphors and implied meanings. The dialogue was limited to 15 lines, with occasional exceptions to retain content originality. Player options were written as morally ambiguous, reflecting real life in Andre Sapkowski's original Witcher series. Alcoholism, abuse, and sexuality, depicted as normal parts of the medieval world, were incorporated into the story for authenticity. Areas of the open world were based on Poland, Amsterdam, and Scandinavia. Objects were modeled by hand. Storylines such as Yennefer imprisoning Geralt on an island and Geralt's convert recruitment to the Wild Hunt were discarded to make the game smaller and avoid splitting it into two parts. The card game Gwent was preceded by other minigame proposals, including a drinking game, knife throwing, and ice skating. A reenactment of the Battle of Grunwald was recorded for the sounds of battle, marching, blacksmithing, and the firing of arrows. 
Recording the knights' voices for post-processing, the speakers wore helmets for an authentic sound. Marcin Sibilovich was the game's music director and composer, with additional music contributed by Polish folk band Percival. According to Sibilovich, working with Percival was a challenge. He expected an academic approach before learning that most of the group were not formally trained, and much of the music was improvised. Multi-instrumentalist Robert Jaworski of the folk band Zywielok recorded lute, renaissance fiddle, bowed gusel, and hurdy-gurdy sections. The score was performed in Frankfurt by the Bradenburg State Orchestra, conducted by Bernd Ruff. Now, when it came to marketing, at a game developers conference, so GDC 2016 panel titled Theory and Practice of Gamer-Centric Brand Development, CD Projekt Red co-founder Marcin Ivinsky talked through the branding, marketing, and public relations process for The Witcher 3. Ivinsky said he feels The Witcher 3 had three pillars that made it a success. First, being a good game. Second, having a gamer-centric value proposition. And third, the team talking about the game directly to fans, something Ivinsky thinks many large publisher teams fail at. To the second point, Ivinsky mentioned that CD Projekt Red came up with a straightforward sentence to describe the game clearly to hardcore fans. But he said the team also came up with simpler phrases to use when talking to mainstream media or gamers, such as, the world doesn't need a hero, it needs a professional. And the goofier, Skyrim in a Game of Thrones sauce. To the issue of talking directly to fans, he pointed to a problem Electronic Arts had with Star Wars Battlefront and showed a video of angry fan reaction to expensive DLC content for the game. Iwinski made it clear that his issue wasn't with the DLC itself, but with how EA failed to properly explain its approach to players. The worst thing is silence, he said. Using an example from The Witcher 3, Iwinski noted a time when players accused CG Projekt Red of downgrading the game's visuals following comparisons with an impressive-looking trailer released earlier in the game's development cycle. He said the management team made a decision to explain what happened in depth rather than to avoid the issue or give a light response, as part of the team's strategy of talking directly to players whenever possible. Doing so, he said, just killed the whole story instead of letting it linger on. Quote, if the story would have exploded... I was actually ready to issue a statement that I would refund all the copies of the people who wanted them out of my own pocket. Then we had a management discussion about it, and others said, if you send this message out there, it could be a real problem, so let's not do this. Ultimately, Iwinski said that this strategy worked well for CD Projekt Red, but may not work for every team on every game. Yeah, and you have to factor 2016, post-launch, kind of a year in review idea. So you're definitely talking yourself up. The game's sold. So I, I get the talk of this. But yeah, I mean, it is the thing. And this is the era where we're starting to get triple A's not necessarily fail as they are like in today's dates, but more of that like weird DLC, silence on controversies, just kind of like doing the like, if we don't talk about it, it'll go away eventually. So I, I do like the idea that he brings up of like, honestly, we want to be upfront with the people that we sell our product to. Like if we messed up, if this thing went bad, like we'll own up to it. But we do and don't see that response when Cyberpunk came out. So, I mean, 
if you yes, if your game comes out as well, you can say this, but when your game doesn't and you are kind of silent with it, it's kind of the hypocritical thing later down the road. Yeah, the game ultimately ends up being the deciding factor, I think. All yes. the all the things that are said at the end of the day, they really don't matter if you don't follow through on them. If you lie or like try to downplay what's actually going on and the game comes out, I mean, it's going to be the truth right then and there. And, and people are going to go back and look at the things you said and have a poor opinion of you. Likewise, you know, if you are honest and say everything's bad and then the game still ends up being bad, it's just going to ultimately look like a failure on the developer. So, you know, just let the product speak for itself. Obviously, you don't need to be out there lying to people, but you're right. This is definitely an era where we see gaming turn more corporate as a whole. So this approach of, well, let's be really honest and direct with the fans of this series and of us about what's going on so that they know what to expect. You know, that works out great because ultimately they were able to meet those expectations. But had Witcher 3 been a bad game, none of that would have mattered. No, and, and we obviously wouldn't have him over at GDC 2016 with a panel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> back at the office figuring out like, uh, what do I do to get some money? <laughs> right. And, and you know, I think it, it goes to show, though, that he does care about that end product. So all those statements, you know, I think they're genuine coming from him. But we can feel out as, as fans of games when we feel like people are not being genuine about what's going on. Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. So it's a cool marketing topic to discuss. And yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot more fans... And that's why just indie games do develop the either cult followings or the very like well-earned followings is because they are more open with fans. They have a Discord server now. They have an email list. They have a direct to Twitter, um, very much like Concerned Ape, who responds, especially with Stardew, to like fan things of like what we want in the game, what's not working. And a lot of the times takes most, if not all of that to heart and applies it to his game. And Concerned Ape is such a great example of, I think, what people really want to see from video game developers as a whole, where mm -hmm. it's not necessarily so profit-driven. Like, Concerned Ape has made a ton of money from the success of Stardew Valley. And so now there's just this development of all these additional content updates that are not being yep. charged for, you know, and, and it's just expanding on the experience of Stardew Valley, not expecting any type of additional compensation, just basically saying, I got what I needed to get from this. Now I'm going to work on another project. And I'm also going to continue working on Stardew Valley. And you can see the the fans really appreciate that when there's a new update, it's always generating more interest in the game. And you mm -hmm. know that it's not greed-driven. And you really see the difference in recovery versus Cyberpunk. We'll bring that up again, which has done a, a pretty close to a 180. And you've got some DLC coming out. But compare that to No Man's Sky, which, yes, is profit-driven. They're, they're games. But you have such a much more dedicated, like, hey, we released this way too early. Sony kind of pressured us into this. But let me give you these updates for free for so long. And you immediately have the love of your audience again. Like you lost it immediately, but like with like the first update, first two updates or so, you've immediately had this audience back with you. And each consecutive update that's come out, you've recruited more and solidified that love in their hearts for like this like, hey, it actually still is an indie studio. 
that's doing this. It's not Sony Studio. It's an indie studio that produced this versus CD Projekt, which kind of laid the blame with the Polish government, laid the blame with gamers' expectations, laid the blame with, you know, corporate investment. And so, yeah, you see a lot of that blame game versus like, yep, it's not what we wanted. Let's make it better. Absolutely. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. But back to The Witcher 3, let's talk about the setting. So the game is set in the continent, a fictional fantasy world based on Slavonic mythology. It is surrounded by parallel dimensions and extra-dimensional worlds. Humans, elves, dwarves, monsters, and other creatures coexist on the continent, but non-humans are often persecuted for their differences. The continent is caught up in a war between the Empire of Nilfgaard, led by Emperor Amir Var Emerus, who invaded the northern kingdoms, and Redania, ruled by King Radovid V. Several locations appear, including the free city of Novigrad, the Redanian city of Oxenford, and the no-man's land of Velen, the city of Visimia, which is the former capital of the recently conquered Tamaria, the Skellig Islands, home to several Norse Gales Viking clans, and the Witcher stronghold of Caer Morhen. The main character is the Witcher, Geralt of Rivia, a monster hunter trained since childhood in combat, tracking, alchemy, and magic, and made stronger, faster, and resistant to toxins by mutagens. He is aided by his lover, the powerful sorceress Yennefer of Vengeberg, his former love interest, Triss Marigold, the bard Dandelion, the dwarf warrior Zoltan Chevet, and Geralt's witcher mentor Vesemir. Geralt is spurred into action by the reappearance of his and Yennefer's adopted daughter, Ciri. Ciri is a source, born with innate and potentially vast magical abilities. After the apparent death of her parents, she was trained as a witcher while Yennefer taught her magic. Ciri disappeared years before to escape the Wild Hunt, a group of spectral warriors led by the king of the Wild Hunt, the elf Aradin, from a parallel dimension. Geralt and his mentor Vesemir arrive at the town of White Orchard after receiving a letter from Geralt's long-lost lover Yennefer. After defeating a griffin for the local Nifgardian garrison, Geralt accompanies Yennefer to the city of Visima, where they meet with Emperor Emhir. Emhir orders Geralt to find Ciri, who is Emhir's biological daughter, and Geralt's adopted daughter. Ciri is a child of the Elder Blood, the last heir to an ancient elven bloodline that grants her the power to manipulate time and space and is being relentlessly stalked by the enigmatic Wild Hunt. Geralt learns of three places Ciri was recently seen, the war-ravaged swamp province of Velen, the free city-state of Novigrad, and the Skellig Isles. In Velen, Geralt tracks Ciri to the fortress of the Bloody Baron, a warlord who recently took over the province. The Baron demands that Geralt find his missing wife and daughter in exchange for information about Ciri. Geralt learns that the Baron drove his own family away with his drunken rages, while his daughter fled to Oxenford. 
His wife Anna became a servant of the Crones, three malicious witches that watch over Velen. He also discovers that Ciri was briefly captured by the Crones, but escaped to the Baron's stronghold before continuing on to Novigrad. At Novigrad, Geralt reunites with his former lover, Triss Marigold, who has gone underground to escape persecution by the Church of the Eternal Fire. He learns that Ciri and his old friend Dandelion ran afoul of Novigrad's powerful crime bosses while seeking to break a curse related to a mysterious philanthropy. With the help of Triss and several old acquaintances, Geralt rescues Dandelion, who tells him that Ciri teleported to Skellig to escape pursuit by guards. Geralt sails to Skellig and reunites with Yennefer, who is investigating a magical explosion near where Ciri was last seen. They discover that Ciri visited the Isle of Lofoten, but when the Wild Hunt attacked again, fled in a boat with an unidentified elf. When the boat returned ashore, its only occupant was Uma, a deformed creature Geralt previously saw living with the Bloody Baron. Deducing that Uma was the victim of the curse Ciri tried to lift in Novigrad, Geralt collects Uma and Velen and takes him to the nearly abandoned Witcher school at Caer Morhen. Working with Yennefer and his fellow Witchers, Geralt breaks the curse and restores Uma's true identity, Avalich, Ciri's teacher and the elf seen with her on her travels. Avalich tells Geralt that he placed Ciri in an enchanted sleep on the Isle of Mists to keep her temporarily safe from the wild hunt. Geralt finds Ciri on the Isle of Mists and learns from her that Aridin, the leader of the Wild Hunt, wants her elder blood powers to save his homeworld from a catastrophe known as the White Frost. They return to Kaer Morhen and fortify it against the inevitable arrival of the hunt. In the battle that ensues, Vesemir is killed, causing Ciri to unleash her uncontrolled power and temporarily send the hunt into retreat. Realizing that the hunt will never stop, Ciri and Geralt decide to fight Aridin at a time and place of their choosing. While Triss and Yennefer reform the Lodge of Sorceresses to aid in the fight, Geralt recovers the Sunstone, an artifact that can communicate between worlds. Using the Sunstone, Alavik lures Aridin to Skellig, where Geralt defeats him in combat. As he dies, Aridin tells Geralt that Avalik has betrayed him and plans to use Ciri's power for her own ends. As the White Frost begins to encroach on the continent, Geralt and Yennefer pursue Avalak, but find Ciri alive and well. She tells Geralt that Avalak is not a traitor and has only ever intended to fight the White Frost. Thinking back on her relationship with Geralt, Ciri finds the strength to stop the Cataclysm. If Geralt patronizes and protects her throughout the game, she dies in the attempt. But if he guides her to mature and make her own choices, she survives. The player's choices can lead to several different endings. If Ciri survives after defeating the White Frost and Geralt takes her to meet her father, she will become the Empress of Nilfgaard. If Ciri survives but does not meet the Emperor, Geralt helps her fake her death and she becomes a witcher. If Ciri is killed in her confrontation with the White Frost, the story ends with Geralt retrieving her medallion from the last remaining crone. The player's choices also determine whether Geralt ends up in a romantic relationship with Yennefer. Triss, or neither, and how much of the North is ultimately conquered by Nilfgaard. I think I do like this. I know we talk about like the endings of games not truly having a consequence on it, like your actions really don't. It all filters to one, but this yep. one definitely gives you a lot of that that you 
may not know of. You may not know what could happen with that. Or there may be like inklings towards it and you may try and, you know, pursue Yennefer or pursue Triss. But I do like the idea of like, none of it truly being a happy ending per se, but you can pick the happiest of them or the worst of them. Yeah, and it's got enough variation, I think, to be good because it, well, what frustrates me in games is when you make those choices and then it, it's really black and white of like, this thing is going to happen or, or this thing is going to happen. And that's just it. This has like multiple threads to pull on where it's got the death or survival of a character. And then it has fate beyond that. And then on top of that, it has more personal implications for Geralt as well. Mm-hmm. And then it has overworldly implications as well. So there's just a lot of different end results. And I feel like when there's that many options, that's where it does start to feel like your choices really do have consequences. Yep. Whereas, you know, just a, a pretty standard black or white, you know, two, three endings, maybe a good ending, a bad ending, and a neutral ending. Those are the ones where I feel like it really doesn't have that big of an impact on what you did throughout the game. It's very much like the last Mass Effect, I think, Andromeda. Uh, A lot of people complained because, you know, Mass Effect and all of those Bioware choice games have different endings. The issue with Andromeda, it was just the ship blows up, but it's a different color. (laughs) Kind of depending on what you sided with (laughs) with that. So it ultimately led to the exact same ending, no matter how you chose it, how carefully you threaded that line of being good, bad, or siding with certain people. It just led to the same thing. And it, it has that effect, um, kind of that telltale games effect, where it's like all choice is an illusion in most of those, even though it's all going to hamper to the exact same thing. And I, that's the issue when there's a false narrative of choice. If right. there's some choice in this, a couple of different endings, a couple of different options, it is choice versus that faux pas, that narrative idea of a false choice being in the ending the same result. Right. And for a Bioware game, that one was particularly frustrating because it's so antithetical to what you're doing throughout those entire games mm-hmm. where it's all about these different pathways. It's all about these decisions that you make. And for all of that to ultimately mean very little is such a frustrating ending to a, a game that puts such an emphasis on those decisions. I think it could be a very rewarding path to go down for a video game developer to decide that these decisions ultimately offer a unique experience to the players. I think it's great replay value, but if you don't really buy into that concept and it's just there because you feel like you have to do it, yeah. then ultimately I think it just delivers an underwhelming experience. And at that point you should just abandon that type of thinking and say like, this is the story, make the story good. And you know, that's just what it is. But yeah, if you're going to offer these different pathways and really make that a point of emphasis, then it needs to be more emblematic of the Witcher 3 sure. in that it has a ton of different threads at the end of the, the story that result from being pulled throughout. And that's the whole idea, too, of Geralt within this. You can make him be like the traditional witchers that are like, I truly don't care about anyone. I'm being paid for this job. Give me money. I don't care if you're poor. I want money. Or you can be kind of that soft-hearted Geralt that's like, 
that begrudgingly like, uh, yeah, keep your money. Like I'll, I'll just do it because I can type thing. So you also have that option of even playing it the way that you want to play it in a, a somewhat quasi evil good sense, if you want to think of it as that, but just in more of like traditional Witcher sense of like, hey, Witchers are seen as monsters. Why not be a monster? Versus like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm still a human within this like altered body. Right. Yeah, you can um, absolutely make it just totally about the money. You can, you can be that sort of callous individual. And I, mm-hmm. I think there's other games that have experimented with that as well. I think you know, one of the inspirations for this was Red Dead Redemption, right? But Red Dead Redemption 2 really does a great job of you can behave sort of in that way where it really is just all about the money or you can try and, you know, turn things around and and try and find more of a deeper meaning. That's a game that maybe has a flawed balance of decision-making and and the end results as well. But um, I think it really is a difficult thing to to succeed at in, in video games. It is. And and I think as far as what this was trying to do of being this open world RPG, telling the story of a story already written, translating it from Polish to English, translating it in these ways of telling the wild hunt story and trying to make characters care about Siri, about Yennefer, about Dandelion. When a lot of us, me included, had never read the books had never really played one or two. And so when you're telling these story beats of fetch quests and monster hunts and political intrigue through this to really suck someone in to actually want to play it and care about it, it takes a lot of narrative writing. It takes a lot when it comes to the combat. It takes a lot. And this game deservedly won and was nominated for so many Game of the Year awards because of this. It, it really was Skyrim, you know, dipped into the Game of Thrones sauce because it has that political yeah. intrigue. It has that betrayal. It has all these, these, these heightened things of Game of Thrones, but in the gameplay style of like Skyrim, leveling up, you know, very loose story-based combat magic. Yeah. I think that is a great descriptor for it. Yeah, and, you know, winter was coming. The white <laughs> yeah, storm, exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. And, yeah, it, it, it really did do a great job at that. I mean like I said at the top of the episode, to um, to really attract, I think, the player base that this did, it, it had to execute the story well. Sure, it had all that great source material, but I think to make itself a success in the gaming realm, it had to make itself accessible to people who had not read those books, and it did a, a really great job. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about the release. The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt was announced in 2013. The release date was later delayed from the third quarter of 2014 to February 2015 after missing its planned release date of February 24th. CD Projekt Red confirmed in April that the game was released to manufacturing. The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt was released worldwide on May 19, 2015, and Polish Prime Minister Iwa Kopacz and President Bronisław Komorowski visited CD Projekt Red to celebrate the launch. As with the second game, Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment and Bandai Namco Entertainment each handled physical distribution of the game in North America and Western Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, respectively. 
In addition to the standard edition, players could also purchase the collector's edition, which included the base game and items such as an art book, a statue of Geralt fighting against a griffin, and a Witcher medallion. At E3 2019, a port for the Nintendo Switch, The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt Complete Edition, was announced. It was developed in cooperation with Saber Interactive and was released on October 15, 2019. The port features slight graphical downgrades to compensate for the Switch's less powerful hardware, but is otherwise identical to existing versions. Now, Alex, I'm curious. The Switch has been doing this a lot, where Mm -hmm. it's taking these games that are like, five plus ish years old and re-releasing them as switch versions but not really doing a lot to improve i think what the games are just sort of taking them and making them mobile are you buying these kind of games or are you passing on these kind of games so i will say i did purchase the witcher 3 for the switch uh, because I wanted the mobile version of it. You know, I, I mostly played it on PC, but I would love to have like an RPG to carry around very much like they released Skyrim on the Switch and a couple other different RPGs. However, I ended up selling it. Uh, the downgrade in graphics was far too much. I mean, you're talking like it looked like 480p on your TV, like like docked and everything. Like going from playing it like high scale visual upgrades and enhanced additions on the PC to that. It was just too much of a downgrade. Um, But I did have a friend who their first time playing it was on the Switch. They had mostly been like, you know, a a Nintendo player and they had no problem with it. So I think it really boils down to kind of like, where did you play it first? Does that truly impact your gameplay? And at least for them, they didn't really care. It was the story, the gameplay, the combat that drove them to keep playing And again, if you don't have those side-by-side comparisons, I think it's totally fine. I think the Switch, as we all know it, and basically every Nintendo console, is always the weakest in terms of graphic fidelity because those mainline games they produce are colorful and silly and are made specifically for it. Because you you can combat this and try and compare it against Breath of the Wild, which was out. But Breath of the Wild does stuff in a way that makes characters less detailed, more curved and boxy at times. Not in N64 terms, but, it, but as opposed to like actually making a humanoid character like those in The Witcher. And so you see where Zelda and these Mario games can overshadow that by making these color palettes that cover it up versus more of these quote-unquote real-looking style games. So, yes, the sacrifice is there, but the gameplay elements are still within this. And I never really saw lag. I never really saw, like, buffering. I think they did really well with the port, as best as they could. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that it's an interesting conversation. For me personally, I've always looked at the Nintendo Switch as a secondary console to me. Yes. If there is something available that I think will play really well as a mobile version... There won't be a big drop off between that and like uh, maybe a PS5, PS4 version. Then I'm going to probably get it on the Switch. But if it's a game like this that's really heavy um, into, I think, concentrating story building, things like that, not really something that I can pick up and put down super easily. I'm mostly skipping games like this on the Switch. So I, I guess for me, I do like that they're trying to make these things available for mm-hmm. Nintendo users. 
But these have mostly been skips for me where they're coming out years later down the road. You are making those graphical downgrades. Downgrades. Yeah, you're 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 having to give some of that up as well. So I've been seeing more and more of these games coming out on the Switch, but I I'm not seeing a lot of hype for them, not a lot of good reception, but you know, maybe they're just not meant to be marketed toward me. Maybe they're meant for players that have the Switch as their primary console or their younger players that, you know, they they're not into multiple consoles like or a PC as well and just having it as an option for them to be able to play on their one true console is probably ultimately a good thing. Yeah, I I don't think the Switch ports of any of these are targeted towards us hashtag real gamers. I think it's so much more of like, hey, the person who travels in the airport that wants a portable game to have, they love playing these RPGs, perfect for them. Like you said, the kid whose console is the Switch didn't play The Witcher, and this is how they played it. Or like my friend who really didn't dabble in a lot of game stuff, but like went with a Switch and was like, hey, this looks like a fun game. I like fantasy games and loved it. So it's definitely not targeted towards those who have other consoles or prefer the highest end fidelity, but those who are just like, hey, I'm here for the game experience. We're a smaller minority of that, but this allows me to take it on the go, to play it on my TV if I want, and to not really care what those kind of end results are as long as I have fun. And as part of some of those additions, not only the Switch come out, but we also had the DLCs. The developers studied Witcher forums and websites such as Reddit to predict what players generally desired from DLC. A collection of 16 free DLCs were released as announced before release by the developers. They included cosmetic and additional gameplay content and the new Game Plus mode. CD Projekt Red announced two expansion packs, Hearts of Stone and Blood and Wine. Hearts of Stone was released on October 13th, 2015, and Blood and Wine on May 31st, 2016. Hearts of Stone follows Geralt as he contacts a mysterious entity known as the Man of Glass and an immortal man, Oligurg von Eberich. The expansion was critically acclaimed, and the second expansion pack, Blood and Wine, follows Geralt as he travels to Tosson, a Nilfgaardian duchy untouched by war, to track down a mysterious beast which is terrorizing the region. It was also critically acclaimed, winning the Best RPG category at the Game Awards 2016. A Game of the Year edition, with the base game, both expansions, and all the DLC, was released on August 30th, 2016. And I'm really glad we didn't go into too many spoilers with these because these are like those really fun Game of Thrones-esque like big turns of what could happen. They're fantastic DLCs. They're standalones, like your classics of the 90s and 2000s DLCs. And they're well worth it. I mean, they're a number of hours. They're fun. They challenge you. They're definitely like those like late game DLCs. So like they want you to play the game a bit to jump into those, which I think is, is fair uh, for those going on because you're well-established as Geralt. And it, they're, they're fantastic. Well, those are the best kinds of DLC, right? Because it's not like day one DLC, like complete, you know, the actual story DLC. Yes. You know, it's, it's the type of DLC that really, like when it can stand alone after the game and it's end game stuff, those are the type of DLCs that I want forever. Like true stories, you got the finished game, you got through it, you wanted a little bit more, but you didn't want to buy... Witcher 3.5 necessarily, mm -hmm. this is the DLC that we need. This DLC reminds me of the DLCs we got like for like Fallout 3 and Fallout New Vegas of like new islands, new areas to go, a whole new like 
you know, 10 hour side quest to do and to, to add onto the game. It just, it just added so much more to the game that is what I think people want from even, not even want, expect from DLCs. Yeah. Versus just microtransactions of like, yeah, I can't wait to get horse armor again. Thanks, Diablo 4. Um, but it's less of those and be like, I just want more game. I don't want cosmetics per se. I just want more game with it. I want more story. I want more playability versus like, I don't need a clown suit for Geralt for 10 bucks. Like I would rather <laughs> play more of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Although a clown suit Geralt sounds pretty great. I don't think I'd pay 10 bucks for it, but I would play it. And like your stealth is zero. Your, your shoes just, where <laughs> you walk so you could never sneak up on yeah. stuff <laughs> zero intimidation or anything like that just be f- fantastic would love yeah. it now we also had a couple re-releases of it as we kind of talked about before but the publisher announced a re-release of the game planned for the ps5 windows and xbox series x and s the game's available as a free upgrade to those existing owners of the ps4 windows and xbox one or you can purchase it separately In 2021, video game news site Kotaku reported that the game would include content from mods produced by fans. Hulk Hogan, creator of a mod that improves the game's textures, announced that the developer had entered talks to include content from the Witcher 3 HD reworked project in the release. CD Projekt Red confirmed to Kotaku that they had entered talks with mod creators, prompting discussion about why the company, which earned $300 million in 2020, sought out community assistance. The release was scheduled for the second half of 2021, but was later delayed to the second quarter of 2022. And the game was developed by Saber Interactive. On April 13th, 2022, CD Projekt Red announced that its in-house development team would be taking over the remaining work on the release and that its release date would be postponed. In November, a release date of December 14th, 2022 was announced. The next-gen update will include new outfits and a quest inspired by the Netflix series, improved visuals and performance, and bug fixes, as well as previously released downloadable content. The re-release was published on schedule and was criticized for introducing performance issues and bugs. Later that day, CD Projekt Red announced that they were investigating the issues and working on fixes, and they have. If if you go on their website, too, you can do these side-by-side pans of the even quote-unquote next-gen of like on the Xbox One and on the PS4. And then seeing it on these super updates, it's fantastic. It's not just like a, hey, we turn on the slider to make it look better. They went into a lot of areas and redid textures, redid texture mapping, added puddles, because that's what we love now that we have all of our HDR and our RTXs now. That's what we do. (laughs) But they added a lot of visuals to it. And it is cool to see them continue to improve the game versus... I know everyone hates re-releases, but versus what Skyrim has done, which is just kind of like, here's the game again. We didn't do anything, yeah. but here's the yeah. game again. Slight modifications to basically, you know, the game doesn't look that different from its original release. Definitely would be frustrating. I'm definitely one of those that um, I did own the PS4 version. I got the PS5 version as well. Haven't mm-hmm. really had a chance to to hop into that. This is... As fun of a game as it is, it is a daunting game. It's just a big, expansive game. So you really got to, yeah. I think, be dedicated to it when you want to play it. But 100% appreciate them going in and fixing issues. Of course, there is going to be, I would expect, bugs when you go into that sure. level of detail. Um, but unfortunately, more reminiscent of, I, I guess, recent CD Project Red projects mm-hmm. with, with things like that as well. But 
But doing the right things, going in, trying to correct those those issues is all you can really do. And, and I want to I want to go after the argument real quick where people were like going after them, being like, you earned a bunch of money. Why are you looking out for the community assistance? I mean, my argument against that is, have you seen the mods that are made for Skyrim, for Witcher, for GTA? Like, when you have people so dedicated and loving this project that they make this, why not reach out to them and pay them? Be like, hey, we love what you did. Why should we recreate what you did when we can just pay you and have you implement these things into the game? Because what you did is amazing. What you did is better than what we did on release. So it's like, why not reach the community and talk about that and embrace the community? Versus hiring a whole team to handle it. Yeah, especially when a lot of times we see companies try and do that stuff. I don't know if it's hubris or or what the situation is, but when you have a mod community that's dedicated to one specific issue versus trying to tackle them all as yeah. a as a company, you know, you can maybe just bite the bullet and say, "Hey, you know, someone already did this for us. Let's compensate them for it and and move on." from the issue rather than have too much hubris about that mm-hmm. and pride. Yeah, it, it's exactly that. And it's just, it's getting the community involved. And this goes back even to what we talked about before. When you can talk to your community and get them involved and make them feel like they're part of this experience together with the creators, why not embrace that? It keeps people on that longevity. That's really why Skyrim stays. Allowing these mods to happen and giving the toolkit out to modders to keep this game alive and to eventually bring those mods to consoles and allow those opportunities. That's why Skyrim can release 45 times and people are still like, yeah, I'll probably pick it up. (laughs) I mean, I don't have it here. I already own seven copies. What's an eighth, you know? Yeah. I don't know too many people that got really excited about the next gen thing again. I I do think it's like now at this point, sort of an expectation that eventually that'll be like a free upgrade type of situation. And it, May have been. I, I don't I know that I have a PS5 version of Skyrim, but I definitely didn't buy it. But yeah, absolutely only has, I think, life because of the mods, new modes, mm-hmm. things like that 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 aren't really game changing. They're not really transforming that game because it's on a new console. It's just that the mods exist. There was enough variety with the base game to where you can always try a new character, a new role play. Something like that. Exactly. The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt received universal acclaim for the PC, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, Xbox One, and Xbox Series X and S versions, and generally favorable reviews for the Switch version, according to review aggregator Metacritic. Critics agreed that it was an ambitious action role-playing game, which was grand in scale, but marred by technical difficulties and a lack of innovation. GameSpot and Eurogamer gave the game their highest rating. The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt has been considered one of the greatest games of all time. The game world received widespread praise from critics. Kimberly Wallace of Game Informer called it immersive and was impressed by its attention to detail. Destructoid's Chris Carter praised its size, which he found enormous. It would take players hours to explore. Jonathan Leake, Writing for Game Revolution praised the game's effective use of its large world. League wrote that every region had quests and activities for players to try, although he thought that much was filler, which extended its length. Tom Sr. of Games Radar praised the open world's variety, describing it as an exciting realization of the Ronin fantasy. 
Game trailers Daniel Bloodworth praised the game for encouraging exploration. Many quests would only become available to players after they met non-playable characters in different parts of the world. Vince Ingenito of IGN and Sean Prescott of PC Gamer were impressed by the game's scenery and its day-night cycle, with Ingenito saying that it highlighted the game world's authenticity. Its narrative received critical acclaim. Carter praised the cast of characters, which he called unique and interesting. He considered the narrative more involving, with players witnessing key events and making consequential choices. Wallace praised the game's dialogue and its side quests. Each was similar to a short story, and players' decisions in the quests would influence the state of the world. She liked the main quest, which added more character to Geralt, and said that the romance options were a significant improvement over its predecessors. However, she was disappointed with the quality of the game's endings. Kevin Van Ord of GameSpot echoed Wallace, noting that the Witcher 3 Wild Hunt story had emotional connections to the in-game characters. Senior enjoyed the side quests, calling them a compilation of dark fantasy short stories, which overshadowed the main quests. Ingenito was disappointed with the main story, saying that there was too much padding and too many dull quests. PC gamer's Sean Prescott agreed, saying that the narrative would have felt rote if the side content was not engaging. Van Ord, Wallace, and Brett Phipps of Videogamer.com praised the voice acting, with Wallace calling it the series' best. Arthur Geese from Polygon criticized some of the female characters as overly sexualized, and that there were no people of color in the main game. The game's combat had a generally positive reception. Bloodworth called Garrett more mobile and agile with the new climbing and swimming mechanic. Carter said that it was significantly streamlined and its predecessor's strategic elements removed, but appreciated its action. Wallace wrote that with a simplified alchemy system, a decent user interface, and diverse difficulty settings, the combat was more accessible. Although she disliked the disruptive weapon degradation system and unrefined crossbow shooting mechanic. Leak thought the system lacked complexity and criticized its lack of polish, caused by the unreliable lock on camera camera issues, and excessively long combat animation. Senior noted that some gameplay mechanics, such as rolling and dodging, were inconsistent and made the system feel unfair. Ingenito praised the combat, describing its fluidity as a significant improvement over its predecessors. The game was criticized for its technical issues. Carter called its climbing animation stiff, noting that some gameplay bugs would hinder player progress. According to Wallace, the game's load times were too long. Leak noted that the game had a graphic downgrade, and the actual game did not look as good as the 2013 demonstration. Phipps and Ingenito noted frame rate issues, although Ingenito thought it did not impact the gameplay. Phipps called it a persistent problem which overshadowed many of the game's achievements. By June 2015, over 690,000 players had activated the game through COG Galaxy. The game sold over 6 million copies in the next six weeks, and the studio made a profit of $63.3 million in the first half of 2015. In March 2016, CD Projekt Red reported that the game had shipped nearly 10 million copies worldwide, and by the end of 2017, the series as a whole had sold over 33 million. By June 2019, that number had risen to over 40 million, with The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt accounting for over half of that figure. 
Following the release of the first season of Netflix television series The Witcher in December 2019, The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt had a 554% increase in sales that month compared to December 2018. By December 2019, The Witcher 3 had sold over 28 million copies worldwide, and by April 2021, it had sold over 30 million copies, while the series as a whole had sold over 50. By April of 2022, the game had sold 40 million copies alone. It's amazing what the show, and any show that does well, can do for something like that. I mean, to basically give you millions and millions of sales, technically after the life cycle of the game, which had come out at that point four years previous, and then at the later states, like you're talking about six, seven years previous, just that crazy increase in sales for this big PR show that came out, it's amazing. Yeah, man. Henry Cavill, that's, that's what he'll do for you, for your video game. Love yeah, him. I mean, it absolutely is. <laughs> I it's mean, it's, it's interesting, too, because, well, if, if you're a fan of that show, I think the show really is like a show of side quests. So, yes. <laughs> you know, if there's any criticism of the game about it having too many side quests, the people that like the show probably really enjoyed the game. And it's, it's funny because the people who play the game love the show. Me being included, I really enjoy the show. The, I'm going to call them, I'm going to call you out, the snobbish book readers. Uh, hit those you with people the, that read. <laughs> hit you with the, um, actually, Geralt doesn't nerds. do this, doesn't do this quest. And it's like, I get it. I understand the butchering of source material for some people or the changing of it. But it's, it's a fun show. I really enjoyed it. I th- yeah, fine. I think it's a pretty I think it's a pretty good show. Um yeah. I probably won't watch it after Cavill's gone, but I, oh, absolutely maybe not. I'll give it a shot. I don't know. I just don't know. It's gonna be weird. I don't, I don't have strong make... feelings on the show, I, I guess. I guess it's just more that thing of like why not just end Geralt's thing and just do another person? Another just change it up. Right. But you could go the Halo show route and be garbage, so who knows? <laughs> um, Shots but, fired. <laughs> listen, before we get too many complaints. Derek, let the people know, why did we choose this game and what do you think of it? Well, it's one of the greatest video games of all time. I, I think that fact is true. I, and, you know, really our reception area for this, I, I think we highlighted a lot of criticisms of the game, but I mm-hmm. think that those are largely a result of nitpicking, uh, I think, the game in, in various ways, which I think happens when a game is this expansive, I, I think that anybody's going to be able to find little things that they just don't like about it. And I think that it's also a victim of a game that when it is that expansive, you have to spend so much time with it that the little things start to stand out to you a lot yeah. more than maybe they would normally. I think that overall, this game is great. I think it's like a nine out of 10. I'm not going to say that it's perfect. There are little things that I think are valid within those criticisms. But it did a really great job of just being a good fantasy RPG, action-oriented RPG. It did a decent job, I think, of pleasing both Witcher fans and non-Witcher fans. And I think hitting that middle ground is, is asking a lot and still being successful. Because if you go too far then you're not going to be able to appeal to a broad audience. Sure. And if you do too little, then you're really not playing a Witcher game anymore. It's just a generic 
fantasy RPG. So finding that balance and still making an entertainment game, an entertaining game, is a really, really hard task. And I, I think they did a great job. Definitely agree with you on that. I mean, it's it's when you when you need to find those middle grounds, like you said, and very much what every adaptation tries to do of of like how do you appease old school and how do you get new fans? How how do you make this as generic as possible, but also as specific as possible? How do you make this just be like a cool story that someone can jump into? And and every author, game developer, movie producer, like they all struggle with that. And and for this to do it really well and to keep that kind of crown this entire time is amazing. And yeah, I mean, for, for unfortunately for this to be like, you know, the magnum opus of CD project red to jump over to cyberpunk, which was an insanely ambitious project that I think in like two to three more years of work could have been fantastic. It's a shame that it kind of falls to that. But coming back to this game, if I had to give it a rating, I would give it, it's, it's a pretty simple rating, and I think everyone would fully agree with me. I would give it the, the total score. No multiples, none of this. The total score is the punchability of all the stupid peasants with the <laughs> stupid bowl cuts that you just want to just destroy. You just want to destroy all of them because they're nagging and needy and awful. And they have the dumbest haircut you can ever believe out of that number. Not even out of 10. It's probably out of that number. I mean, it's, it's some might say infinite. So, some might say. There is a perplexing amount of bad haircuts in medieval <laughs> style games. Listen, someone just saw the bowl and was like, that's a good haircut. That'll yeah. be it. It's good enough. I mean, just, you know, get rid of all of it. Just, just cut it just down not. to the bottom. You know, go for the Caesar. Get just something. He was, get just he something. was around by that point. He had a solid haircut. Yeah, just get anything that wasn't the worst looking thing for the snottiest people. Then I'm fine. <laughs> for sure. Very, very fair. Very valid. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker. The intro and outro music for this episode was written, recorded, given to us by our friend Evan Barr, and our lovely artwork was provided by Aaron Shattuck. Lovely people, as well as lovely people who are supporting us over on Patreon. If you want to check it out, it's patreon.com slash finish the fight, where we've got some physical digital rewards, as well as some game servers and some fun game nights. So hit us up there. I want to thank a select you members today with dust storm snide t-bird nick hyman and anthony gooch thank you all so much for your support you can find this podcast on apple podcast spotify or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform if you haven't yet drop us a review it helps us out a lot and we love to hear from you and if you want to check us out gamings and what's nuts you can check us out on twitch you can see me at twitch.tv slash sourman70 that's twitch.tv slash s-o-u-r-m-a-n-7-0 as well as derek over at twitch.tv slash the bakerman 247 that is twitch.tv slash the bakerman 247 if you haven't yet join our discord there is a link in the description below you can also follow us on twitter we're on instagram as well we're hanging out in that discord all the time we'd love to see you there and with that that concludes our coverage of The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. Are there better adaptation games out there? Are there other RPGs you think that handles this type of like medievaliness better? Let us know. Hit us up. 
and try and prove us wrong. And with that, as always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Medieval Haircut. (laughs) And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast.